want to greet each one in Jesus' name this evening. This afternoon, um, my wife and I, Elise and I, took a little walk down to the pond. And um, on our way back up from the pond, uh, there was this thing on the ground. And I just caught it out with my peripheral vision. And it made me just take a jump. Um, anyone guess what that may have been? A snake. It wasn't a bad snake. It was a, <clears throat> a green snake about that long. A beautiful little fella. And uh, I haven't held a snake for a long time. And I had this natural repulsion to him, kind of like women are supposed to have. And uh, but anyways, it was such a pretty little snake that I went over and I, you know, followed around and I finally got a hold of its tail and it wrapped itself around different pieces of of uh, grass and and uh, then finally Lisa picked up, reached out and grabbed it by the center and then I pulled it out, you know, and let it play around my arm and stuff and uh, just a just a sweet little green snake. Well, this evening, I want to talk about another um, beautiful snake um, in the narrative of, in the narrative of uh, our beginning as mankind, as we know it. And this is the, uh, I'm calling, titling this message, Beguiled and Cursed. And it goes way, way back to Genesis. So if you want to open your Bibles to Genesis 1, uh, we'll start looking at that. I'm not going to read all of this for the sake of time. This message was grew on me after an instruction class. Before prior to that, I'd had a conversation. I'd spent uh, quite a while in a Sheets parking lot talking with a friend of mine. This is Sheets parking lot, Madison Heights. Talking with a friend of mine there who was sharing with me a, a heartbreaking story, a tragic story, and uh, that just left me, um, left me feeling, you know, sad again that life has to be this way. Um, and I'll share more about that later on. And then I heard this song on the radio. I was at a job site or somewhere and the song came and this woman was um, belting out this, I was born in original sin. And uh, it just struck me how tragic that someone would come, become so calloused to the, to the, um, that, um, how, that reality, that they would actually glorify it. Um, so anyways, I would like to look at this. I would I'd like for it to be a review to us. Um, first of all, about who we are as a people in, in the sight of God. And, um, and secondly, um, and, and I would like for us to stay there long enough that we really feel it. I think too many times we talk about, well, yeah, we're sinful man and so forth, and then we quickly get to the salvation part. Well, I would like to stay here long enough that we actually maybe get a little better sense of, of where we've fallen from. So we have this 
In the creation of man here in Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And if God says it happens, right? And He tells him what to do. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God created He Him. Male and female <coughs> created He them. God blessed them. God said unto them, Be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl there, and over every living thing that moveth on the earth. And uh, He told them, I give you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of the earth, and every tree which is the fruit of the tree yielding seed to you, it shall be for meat, and to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air and to everything that creepeth on the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat. And it was so. And God's, God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. So, you have the animals at that point weren't eating other animals. Neither were they eating man. Nor was man eating animals. Uh, it looked like everything was living, supposed to live, off of the fruit of the trees. Um, things were looking pretty good. Pretty peaceful, I would say. And then we have the temptation in Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And He said to the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not touch of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch of it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, now, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And then we come to the fall. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof. So things are just happening seemingly very rapidly. And uh, you know, from one point to the next, uh, creation, the, the serpent comes along and then we have, um, you know, moving right on here to the temptation. She takes the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her. He did eat. The eyes of them both were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And now we go to the excuses. Now the serpent was more subtle um, than any of the beasts of the field. Okay, then. Okay, I've got the wrong sequence here. Um, I hope I haven't missed some verses. Missed a section here. May have to open that up. So Genesis three verse. Okay, and they heard the voice of the Lord. And this is verse eight of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, 
Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman who thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. So we hear excuses coming here. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, And so we have these excuses, Adam blaming Eve, and then Eve blaming the serpent. And then we move on back to the punishment, and God deals out the punishment to the uh, both to the man and the woman and then the serpent as well. The Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of the life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be unto thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. And so we have this additional curse coming here of the, the, the ground being cursed. Uh, it's somewhat indirect. But Adam would, it's acknowledged that the ground would be cursed because Adam would have to work in a whole different way uh, to, for his sustenance. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt, re- thou shalt return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And then I have titled for the next portion, The Mercy. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothe them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the, God, therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of the Eden, of Eden, cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. And so I'd like to consider the following. First of all, man is created in God's image. He's a man is man is created a creative being, meaning that he likes to create. That's a gene he got from God. It's a God gene. He likes to create. He's creative. A being can think, reason. A being that can think and reason and most importantly has choice. So this creativity can work both ways now. It can work for good or it can work for evil. Man has given dominion over all earthly, all things earthly. The birds of the air. The beast of the field and the plant life. They're his to be a steward of. The fruit of the plant is to be his and the animals for sustenance, like we talked about. The trees, uh, undoubtedly many of them, many, many of them, probably many more than we know about. They were probably delicious fruits that came off of those trees and nuts that came off of those trees that we don't know about today. Now that's you know speculation on my part, but I just imagine that we may be seeing only a little part of what all that was in that beautiful garden. 
But there were two special trees. Two very special trees. And those were the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And he told God specifically in verse 15 of chapter 2, the Lord God specifically told man, uh, and actually in chapter 16, he said, you can eat of all the trees, okay? You can eat of all the trees in here except for these two trees. In verse 17. And why are those trees so special? Um, you know, I'm going to share with you my thoughts this evening. These could, uh, there could be a broad range of thoughts in this Scripture on the fall of mankind. Um, and maybe some of those be within the spectrum of... of uh, being um, biblical. Um, but to me, as I study this, uh, these are my thoughts, and, uh, and I hope that I hope they will um, you understand where I'm coming from and that they'll resonate with you. Um, we have these two special trees here, and uh, you know, why were they put there? For what reason? What function were they to serve? Now we read about the tree of life being in Revelation again, right? It's As we read in Revelation, it talks about the tree of life. Um, I don't recall, I didn't look this up, but that the tree of knowledge of good and evil shows up again. And then there's a the question, why did Adam and Eve cover themselves? Were they afraid of God? Were they trying to camouflage themselves? Did they know that something about their disobedience would make their sight of themselves cringeworthy before God? One thing we know that humanity has been covering itself in some manner or form ever since the fall. And then the question, what does it mean when God said, behold, the man has become as one of us? These are questions I was asking myself as I read through here. The man has become as one of us to know good and evil. To me, the placing of the two trees in, in the garden seems to be God's way of letting man know when the time came that they would be disobedient, that he it would let man know that their sin was very significant. Um, very, very significant. You know, I think man would have been disobedient without the trees that they shouldn't eat from. He would have probably mistreated the animals at some point, been unkind to his fellow men, done things that were contrary to the will of God in other ways that would have required at some point punishment. Uh, no doubt his acts of disobedience would have reached an outright rebellious state at some point, I believe. A state in which he would have been answering to his own desires instead of the, to the desires of his heavenly Father, his Father Creator that came and talked to him in the garden. The tree of knowledge of good and evil seems in my mind to have been God's way to make that choice and the consequence very clear, equally clear to them. And when it says here to know good and evil, I, I feel like that means that sense of experiencing, not a head knowledge to know good and evil, but more he would experience um, when God is talking about this and, and sending them out of the garden, that man has become like as one of us, um, or like us, to know good and evil. 
that he would he could experience that and would know what the experience of the pain of evil is man would shed tears of sorrow that only evil could initiate in his experience woman would experience pain in childbirth man would know the pains of tending the earth planet in its cursed state Man would find his communion with the rest of earth life stressed. The natural dominion God endowed to man would be challenged, strained. His relationship with his creatures would become challenged and strained. The line wouldn't become, wouldn't be his good, nice, big friend anymore. Instead, it would be his enemy. The T Rex or the Tyrannosaurus, that 40 foot 15-ton beasts that may have well transported Adam and Eve from one side of the garden to the far reach of the other side would become the fearful dragon, most likely. The lamb was no longer safe to, to lie down beside the line. It was no longer safe to graze fearlessly wherever it wanted to. Um, so all of these things, I believe, took place then with the curse. Romans 8.20 says the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in a hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And I think that's exactly where we're at. The creation is groaning and travailing in pain until now because of something that took place back here that we're reading about this narrative. We're a suffering creation. It's true. We have our good days. Thank God for those. And I think we're supposed to thank God for the bad ones too. But it's easier to thank God for the good ones. However, no matter how we call it, we're a dying and we're a suffering creation. Mankind rises and falls like the tides in the ocean comes and goes. Well, on this journey from a mother's womb to our universal womb, the dust from which we were formed, we are faced with uncertainty, disease, sorrow, pain. All of this is a result of evil. And we're faced with evil. Evil in purer forms. Or unpure forms. Why are we faced with such a gloomy picture? Why is the landscape of humanity so, so gloomy? Why are death and taxes so certain? Why can't we live the idyllic life we all dream about? Why are even our best experiences tainted with disappointment? Right? You go on that wonderful trip or that wonderful thing you want to do and spend all the time planning and so forth and there's something there. A head cold. A, someone got sick. You know, something went wrong. Um, most times things work out, but do we really know what it would be like if we would just be released completely from any curse? Now, I'm not saying every time something goes wrong, it's a curse on us, but rather I think it's an environment we're in. It's the result of the curse. Why is temptation our ever-present earthly portion? Think about it. You, so you 
are in a singing group and you sing well, and why are you tempted with pride? Wouldn't it be nice just to not be tempted? You know, or tempted with, uh, you know, um, frustration or something like that when the singing doesn't go well. Uh, we're tempted towards the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life like John talks about. Continually, we're, we're tempted in this way. The temptation we constantly face is nothing less, I believe, than the ongoing manifestation of the, this bondage that we're dealing with. Why is teaching our children the importance of dealing well with disappointment even necessary? And the more important question is, is this God's plan for the masterpiece of God's creation, mankind? Is this way we're living, the way the earth is, is this God's plan for mankind? Well, let's go back to Genesis 3 verse 22. And the Lord God says here, Behold, man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put his forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Um, he says, let's move them out of the garden. And it seems to me that God mitigated the... When we say mitigate, it means it... Um, lessen the opportunity or turn aside that opportunity uh, of the potential consequence of man's sin by ensuring that he wouldn't eat of the tree of life and, and therefore be cursed to a state of physically living forever. Physically, okay? So in a carnal sense, he's physically living forever. So he's eaten of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So now he can know good and evil. And now he moves over here, and if the devil tempts him with that and eats of that tree, he'll now be in the state where he lives forever trapped like that. That body won't die anymore. It'll just be a continual death of that body. But there won't be a, an end. Now, that's a little bit of a fuzzy, maybe, um, point there. But I think there's really something to that. Somehow or other, God was wanting to mitigate man's consequence there by not letting him eat of the tree of life. So God steps forward. He expels his first couple and he commands the gates of the beautiful garden to be closed. You know, I actually, I think this was the devil's design to first of all, lighten that first couple to evil and then spring the trap. And I see this as God's mercy. For the first couple, banishment from the garden was an awful experience. It was terrible. For the human race, it seems to me that it was one of God's early steps in redemption's path. Again, the question is, the curse, bondage, and pain, and so on, is this God's plan for mankind? Michael Card, a, a songwriter, wrote it, writes it this way, In Eden, the darkening garden was still, unwet by all the tears from the sky. The burden of that disobedient bite brought all the tears the fallen world would cry. The unwelcome tears that they had never known, they never had known, coursed down their fallen faces in surprise. All they ever had seen was a light of his face, but now the sin had entered in, their tears would fall like rain. 
The chorus goes, falling tears from fallen eyes, our faces with the unaccustomed stain. We were driven from the garden beneath a cloudless sky, for human tears are older than the rain. And so we were all driven from his presence and his peace to stumble all along this long lamenting race. From the deepest, darkest shadows, he joins us, Christ joins us on our way, and we recognize our fallen tears upon that human face. And I'll read the course again. Falling tears from fallen eyes, our faces with the unaccustomed stain. We were driven from the garden beneath a cloudless sky, for human tears are older than the rain, literally. So stepping forward, and I would like to just look forward further. Is this God's plan? I, and I don't want to stay there long, but we see Jesus Christ when he was on the earth. And he was healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, raising the dead, feeding the hungry, giving hope to mankind. So, no, I don't think that's God's design to leave man in such a state. That's not what he, he wanted. But I'd like to go back there again and stay there. So I just felt like I needed to move forward a little bit, give us a glimmer of hope out of the miry clay. No, God's design isn't bondage and the forces of evil loose to wreak havoc on the earth and mankind. This isn't God's design. The serpent did beguile the woman. The woman offered to the man and the, wo- to the, man, and the man and the woman entered into disobedience towards God together. And in a cosmic way, the serpent, the devil, the great deceiver has done something very similar to what the cartel did to Victor. He's done something very similar to us. He has beguiled away from us that sweet communion we had with God. Um, not only that, but he's introduced sin and all the knowledge or all the knowing of sin into the world. He has introduced a damning virus from which there's, it's, for us it's humanly impossible to recover from. There's no way back out of it. The only difference between the cartel, well, there's a lot larger differences, but the one major difference I see between the cartel and the serpent is this, that the serpent beguiled and we willingly complied. Whereas man has been, and man has been complicit in sin ever since. Whereas the, the cartel stole by force. So the serpent beguiled and man was complicit. The cartel stole by force. So we're here, each one of us, this evening. We've been born into a sin-cursed environment. And furthermore, we have this propensity and this will to rebel against our Creator God. Like Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And I had to think of also of an object lesson, you know, watching that eclipse. How that the moon, as it lined up just right out there in space, you know, it, it managed to block the sun from us for a time, didn't it? And uh, how that, that's so, such a fitting uh, thought in my mind to our desires, our selfish ambitions, ourselves, 
we have this propensity to block the light from our Creator God. These things do. This selfishness and so forth. That sin nature. And then we go on to ask, why so much darkness? We ask, where is God in all the pain and turmoil of the human race? And the answer is exactly where we want Him to be. On a general level at least. Far and away. So the above, that's our natural state. The state in which we were, all, we were all born and we naturally travel. It's a wide and it's a broad road that's easy in the fact that we need to do nothing but that which is natural and carnal to travel this road. It's an easy road to get on. We can stay on it. But it's a very difficult road. And it's a path to destruction, total and eternal destruction. None that reaches end will ever be recovered. Their death and all its desire will be eternally satisfied upon its victims. And truly this road pays hell to many of its travelers long before they reach the damnable gates. This road pays hell to many of its travelers. We see the victims all around us in society. It's not an easy road. In the sense of being a plush and luxurious road. There's some that find it that way, but mostly people find it to be a very difficult road. A very painful road. Going back again, we're, we as humans are both the victims and the, we're, we're also the perpetrators. We're the victims and we're the perpetrators. We were born as victims into this unnatural environment of sin. And we have willingly perpetrated the sinful rebellion against God. We're all guilty of, through our own willful and sinful nature, of blocking the light of God, which in turn causes confusion and darkness. So now we're back to Adam and Eve again. Falling tears from fallen eyes, our faces with an unaccustomed stain. We were driven from the garden beneath the cloudless sky. For human tears are older than the rain. You know, Adam and Eve have looked at each other for a way out of this mess, the sinful, sin-cursed mess throughout the millennia. They've built towers. They've fought wars. They've bought insurance. They've taken pills. They've done therapy. They've tried harder, worked longer, turned to tech, focused on community, fought globalization, fought overpopulation, warned against climate change, tried to manage nuclear threats, and the list goes on and on of man's many agendas to pull himself out of misery by his own bootstraps. And it hasn't worked and it won't work. Man can't save himself and no man can save another. And that's an interesting point. No man can save another. Man will only find his perfect state in God again by following God's plan. And God's rule is that only sinless man could redeem Adam's race. Only sinless man could substitute himself to the penalty of Adam's condemnation. And that's an impossibility from a physical sense. So the gloom and the doom was, you know, so, I think, so real to Adam and Eve. Outside of man, there's just no way of, of redemption. 
Because we're all perpetrators. We're all victims and we're all perpetrators. We were born in a sin environment and we're perpetrators of this sin by nature. We move it ahead. The cartel did exactly what their father, the devil, had taught them to do. They moved ahead sin. <clears throat> so what does the Bible say about this? In Hebrews 9.22, and I haven't, I'm not spending much time at all here because there's not time, and also because I wanted to spend more time speaking about the fall of man. Well, what does the Bible say? In Hebrews 9.22, it says, almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood is no remission. So this is a, a law that God has put in place that there would need to be the shedding of blood for remission or for a redemption, I think we could put there. And Hebrews 9.28 says this, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin until salvation. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Matthew 26, 26 says, and as they were eating, and this is a scene with the disciples here, uh, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take ye, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remissions of, remission of sins. So Jesus here, you know, we're stepping through a lot of different steps and kind of catapulting forwards. But Jesus here is saying, it's me. It's the giving of myself that brings that redemption about. Take heed of me. Uh, take me into your lives. Make me part of your own uh, is what I believe he's saying there. I will bring about salvation to you, Jesus says. Romans 5, verse 5 says, And hope maketh not a shame, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, lost, rebels, while we were yet victims and perpetrators, Christ died for us. So Christ died for us to do what? To bring us back into that perfect relationship with him again. That state where God can communicate with man face to face. Where there can be sweet communion. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him, from eternal wrath. For if when we were the enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also join God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement, the salvation, this covering. Sin entered a perfect world and caused death. So it came in. It stole away what was good. And I, you know, I think of it like this. Going back to the eclipse again. There was so much, you know, we watched it. The sun was round and then we saw part of it move. And then we saw it move some more. And I can't make my fingers go away. But anyways, you kind of see this thing. 
until we're all the way down here. We just have this sliver here, right? Even with just that little sliver there, there was a lot of light. And somehow my, my mind just thought that that had to be some significance there, how that God withdrew himself and is withdrawing himself from man when they rebelled was a result, uh, resulted in the curse. Evil was allowed to come in and make inroad. But we, have, we still have lots of light. We are still graced with God's presence. In a, in a large way, we still enjoy the blessing of God. Especially when we reach out to Him in faith and we accept Him, we take hold. And we cry out to our Father and we say, yes, this is what we want. We want your blood. We want your salvation in our lives. That light, I think, becomes just stronger and stronger and leads us onwards to the, to the eternal light, to the fullness of light that we can experience with Christ. Through the advent of Christ, righteousness enters the world and it offers life. And you know, we have a part to play here as Christians. We're, we're part of that light that comes in and, and moves into a sin-cursed world and, and just puts in rays of light around. When there's so much darkness, little light makes a big difference. And lots of little lights make a big, a big, big difference. And uh, that can give us hope and joy. Most be, most be, mostly because it saves us and because it has the power to exceedingly save. Keep on saving. Greater is he than, that is in you than he that is in the world. I hope this, I hope what I've shared will will have the effect of just making you more thankful of, of God's rich grace to us and, um, and also make us consider soberly how truly lost we are, how lost mankind is without a Savior, without a Redeemer. That is the purpose of this, of this message this evening. May God bless you.